0: And welcome back to the Mood Society podcast. I'm one of
1: your hosts, Camille Begley. I am a copywriter here at Mood. And I'm the other host, Ashley, and I help run the social media pages and it's been so long since we've done this setup. I know we we did three
0: podcasts in February with some really inspiring artists and designers, so it was not that much work on our end because we just basically were like talk, mm-hmm. and it was great. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Honestly. It was fantastic. Uh, today we're going to be giving you all a little history primer for the second season of Bridgerton, mm-hmm. which comes out. March 25th, and we're giving you a little history lesson today. Hopefully it's not that boring,
1: but we'll see. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if our viewers are anything like I was when I was learning about this, I loved it so much, but it was so cool. It blew my mind in some, some areas. It is. It
0: cool. Yeah, I found, I found kind of a way to get into it. I don't usually love the Regency period just because... I don't know. I never liked the
1: gowns. Oh, yeah. To be honest, I uh, I think the cut of the gowns are kind of ugly. <laughs> Not my favorite era, but in regards to just the transition into this outfit and how women felt... Uh, free to not wear such yeah binding undergarments and just the transition into it. And then the very quick transition out of it. I just always thought it was fascinating.
0: There is some really cool stuff about it. Also, I love how we just alienated like half of our <laughs>
1: listeners in the first five
0: minutes. We were just like, and this is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Great start. Great start. We're doing good. We're doing good. No, I didn't know I liked the history until I did research this week and I was like, Okay, there are a lot of stuff that people didn't tell me that I've been rambling about to people in the office because I'm just like...
1: Why did no one tell me about this? That's always like the most fascinating part about doing history research is like half the stuff we find out we never learned in school or anything.
0: It's Why? like, yeah. it's like, I feel like this is important and yeah. <laughs> we didn't learn it. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with a little background history because I feel like you can't really learn about the clothes until you know a little bit about the period itself. Absolutely. And then we're going to go into the clothes and then we'll talk a little tiny bit about pop culture and Regency and just talk about some of our favorite movies, TV shows. Talk about the first season of Bridgerton and what we kind of expect for the second season. Ooh. Sounds
1: like a plan.
0: All right. So I'll take you all through the general history. So the Regency period is interesting. The Regency period is named after a policy that was put in place when King George III was deemed unfit to rule. So his son, King George IV, ruled in his place. So that formal period of Regency was around 1811 to 1820. But some authors, artists, and scholars extend the period to roughly 1795 to 1830. Also, I feel it's important to mention that we will be focusing mostly on European dress um, because that's when Bridgerton takes place and that's kind of the world that Bridgerton is in. So if you're listening to this to sort of get your bearings, you know that we're solidly in England with a broader... European Mm -hmm. sense. Just some interesting stuff that was going on at the time. Napoleon and Duke Wellington were the two biggest uh, military leaders at the time. There was a large difference between upper class and lower class, both social and economic. For example, the upper class had a totally different way of living than the lower class did. And there were also very strict class divisions, of course, like you couldn't marry between classes. It was known for flourishing of arts, literature, and high society. A lot of the great British poets were around during this time. Keats, Byron, Wordsworth, uh, some really Blake as well. Although I was going to mention him with artists, and then of course Jane Austen, who <laughs> is
1: <laughs> everyone. Everyone's like, yeah. you see Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Jane, Jane Austen, <laughs> who's
0: the best? To be fair, <laughs> probably my favorite part about the Regency is her novels. Also, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a feminist writer at the time, was active during that time. Although she wasn't like very well favored Mm -hmm. because her ideas were a little too forward. And I have two events that I would like to focus on to sort of set the scene of what socially was going on during the time of Bridgerton and during this time in England. So a very interesting thing that frames this regency is two laws regarding the abolition of slave trade. So in 1807, the slave trade itself was totally abolished. So I would like everyone to sort of go back to history. History class in like seventh grade when you learned about the triangular trade and how that worked, England was basically one of the main points of the triangular trade system where British would profit off of the byproducts of slavery in America. Think cotton, that's probably the best and easiest one to explain. Uh, So in 1807, it was totally abolished that England could not participate in the slave trade anymore. However, I think it's important to mention that slavery itself was illegal in England since basically the ninth century. Uh, However, it was not illegal in England's colonies. So they kind of had this weird sort of workaround rule where they could say like, well, we don't participate in the slave trade, but all of our giant amount of colonies do. Yeah, it's horrific. And then in 1833, slavery was illegal in most British colonies besides those that were at the time owned by private businesses like the East India Trading Company. The reason why I picked these two events out is A... I never learned that these laws framed what is both the formal Regency and the Regency period as we know it in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And as it was such a flourishing of arts, it was a very interesting time. I feel like a lot of people were having these very radical ideas. Of course, now we would not think of these as radical, but for the time, very radical ideas. And especially with Bridgerton, which has been both praised and criticized for its portrayal of race, I think it's really important to kind of have this in the back of our minds as we watch the show just because i think it adds to the conversation
1: oh absolutely and like the this period is the first push that we see towards a more modern society yeah and quote unquote, unquote yeah oh yeah i did that but like yeah <laughs> you <it>. saw i <laughs> saw it but
0: <laughs> yeah it's It's interesting because I think there is a huge push towards equality. There are a lot of uh, very famous abolitionists during this time. And also it happened really quickly. When you think about it, it was under 30 years, which obviously that seems like a long time. But in the grand scale of history, specifically British history, that's like nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's... It's interesting. I I think especially within the context of Bridgerton, and as we've seen in the the pictures for season two, where they're showing uh, one of the main families is from India, I think it will be really interesting to see how they deal with this history. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. The other thing I would like to mention that sort of leads into what you're going to be talking about, which is the fashion and the clothing of the time, Mm -hmm. is the acquisition and i say acquisition with heavy quotation marks here bolded <laughs> bolded quotation marks <laughs> i am joking they were probably stolen of the Elgin or Parthenon marbles throughout 1801 to 1812. I'm not going to bore you all of the paperwork that this guy, Lord Elgin, came up with to be like, hey, Ottoman Empire, do you mind if I take these marbles that are definitely mine with with this parchment that I just gave you? Like, do you mind that? The legitimacy of how they were acquired is very, very dubious. And this was debated at the time. I think a lot of people think when we talk about these debates about stolen art and statues and these kind of things that we're just talking about it now. But people such as Lord Byron, uh, Lord Byron wrote a poem protesting the acquisition of the marbles. There were several important members of parliament in particular that were like, this is not like, these aren't ours. (laughs) Um, However, there were a lot of important people at the time who were inspired by the monuments, um, such as Keats and Wordsworth. And it's really easy to suggest that the acquisition of the marbles, along with the discovery of Venus de Milo in 1820, led to the craze that we call neoclassicism in England. I think it's really easy to sort of draw a direct link there.
1: Oh, honestly, that's, I definitely think it either completely directly or almost completely directly influenced it, especially when we start getting into the clothing in a minute. You can definitely, definitely see parallels. Yeah, and I think oftentimes... We can kind of be
0: sort of mesmerized by the clothing because we either think it's so pretty or we don't like it and we're talking specifically about the clothing and Mm -hmm. we can kind of focus in on that and forget the larger picture of what was going on socially at the time and, you know... This is, I think, a very direct link to how the clothing silhouettes worked. And particularly, I printed out a picture of the Parthenon marbles themselves. They're so gorgeous. I could see how somebody was inspired by them and how the entire society wanted to emulate these marbles. So Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that's important to know as we go forward. Absolutely. Woo. Woo. Ash and I were lucky enough to see a lot of uh, this type of art in person when we went abroad. And specifically in the British Museum, I went to see the Parthenon marbles, which I didn't even really know what they were. Like, I knew that they were there, but I was like, oh, they're marbles from the Parthenon and they're of dubious acquisition. It's the British Museum. (laughs) And then I went to the British Museum and first of all, I went the wrong way. So I ended up in this like library room that was just full of old books and busts of like famous explorers. And I'm using that with heavy quotation marks again. And so that sort of set the tone for my whole visit. And I was like, this is weird. And then I sort of was wandering around the museum and it was very weird because it was like, oh, that's stolen. I've read about how the country wants that back. Oh, that's stolen. And then I got to the Parthenon Marble Room and there's entire pamphlets of how they're like, should we give these back to Greece? And it was like... I feel like if you have pamphlets <laughs> of should you give them back to Greece, maybe you should. But they are they're gorgeous in person. They're stunning. And it they're sort of one of those art pieces that uh, you look at and you're just. You're sort of frozen
1: yeah. in place because you're like, okay, like this is so cool. I definitely know I, I spent a very long time just staring at these. Yeah. And you also, like, photos definitely don't do them justice seeing them in person. The the grand scale of them. Yeah,
0: the room is, like, it's huge. Like, it's giant. I don't have exact dimensions, obviously. but <laughs> Ginormous. Yeah, so... That's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this because I was like, oh, I know these. I've seen these. Mm -hmm. But also I was just like, wow, I didn't know that that was happening during this time. Again, I
1: feel like it's kind of important. Absolutely. <laughs> like,
0: all right. You want to talk about clothes?
1: Yes. Clothing. Woo. So to jump on to the clothing of the period, which I'm sure is what a lot of our audience is very excited to listen to mm-hmm. and listen about. Um, so never before in history has fashion changed so radically or quickly as it did between the years of 1789 and 1800, we went from cinched corsets to mm-hmm. really...
0: For all the costumers, we know their stays. We're going to yes, use them yes, interchangeably. Yes. <laughs> Don't. It's fine.
1: Yes, but the two of us have a costume degree. It's so we fine. We definitely know the, it's fine. the difference <laughs> But uh, going from the very cinched, very super voluptuous, very Baroque Rococo styles (laughs) to a more simplistic A-line, not super embellished garments was a slap in the face for many people at this this time period.
0: I want you to just think of if you haven't seen the fashion that existed before uh, the Regency period, just think of like not being able to fit in a door because your skirts are so wide yeah. <laughs> that is a thing that happened to people and it was insane
1: yeah you have to do that uh you have to go in you have to go like, sideways. sideways yep <laughs> <laughs> i love that but one besides the um uh, the greco and roman statues that we mentioned previously that probably influenced the outfits of this yeah. time. What also is potentially a theory what influenced the outfits is, uh, which I'm pretty sure we mentioned in a previous podcast episode, uh, Marie Antoinette and her chemise à la reine which is one of the first times that we saw women wearing very sheer white muslin, not having a lot of like cinched corseted... Like very sturdy. structured yeah, undergarments. undergarments. Um undergarments. They were more freer and it was more just... Uh, very loosely draped around the body and this possibly led into the uh dress the empire silhouette that we'll talk about very very soon
0: yeah and also just so the audience can picture it when we say muslin it's it's Interesting because muslin can mean a lot of different things where you're coming from. Specifically in this time period, muslin was more like a cotton wall. Yeah. Whereas obviously now we associate muslin with like the fabric used to mock up your garments. Mm -hmm. Not really the same thing. It's confusing and I was... I think I was confused about it for like two years in the costume degree. And I just didn't say anything because I didn't want to sound stupid. But I was like,
1: um, it's really, really hard to imagine people walking around and like mock-ups. Yeah. And that's literally what I thought for like a solid few years. I was just like, I'm not going to say
0: anything because I don't want to sound stupid. But I think like I'm missing something
1: here. (laughs) I I was definitely confused. Yeah. But yeah, no, the muslin of this time was definitely a much higher um, yeah, quality. Than, like, yeah, quality.
0: De- it was more sheer. Again, like, it's really similar to a cotton ball. Like, kind of mm-hmm. sheer, flowy, uh, of a higher quality than muslin. Mm-hmm. They weren't walking around wearing mock-ups all
1: the time. <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> would be, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, yeah. During this time period, they're sorry. Which, this happens a lot in history where Society goes from wanting excess like the Baroque and Rococo Mm -hmm. styles and everything's embellished and everyone's adorned in these incredible accessories and then it suddenly switches to a more uh, simplicity, uh, symmetry, uh, just overall just much simpler designs and looks. And this happened in not only visual arts and music and architecture, but as well, uh, women's fashion.
0: Yeah. And I think going back to even the neoclassical, like, obviously, there's a lot of research now that shows that probably back in ancient Greek times, the statues themselves were like, like highly painted and had a lot of very vibrant, very colorful. But obviously now, because we're discovering them many, many years later, (laughs) discovering, we're seeing them completely pale white. And I feel like there's a more simplistic slant to that that obviously it shows up in the clothes mm-hmm. and because a lot of people at this time were inspired by the ancient world um both greek and roman i think particularly looking at the statuary of that time the very white tones and the very simplistic colors was probably something very influential
1: absolutely 100 mm-hmm. and also speaking about uh these statues A lot of early neoclassical fashion is, female fashion, is credited to early art studio expression dress. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, because with a lot of, which I, this was like one of the most interesting things that I learned, that with a lot of artistic settings when their illustrators are drawing the human form, specifically the female form, the, the women would be draped very classically.
0: In, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very yeah. sheer muslin, so you can still see so the So you body can see the body, and yeah.
1: Them. And because, the quote-unquote, they wanted to treat the body as a work of art. Mm. And since the neoclassical dress uh, in these artistic settings were distinctly white, which... Huge racial undertones in the skin further. Oh, yeah. There's uh. a lot of, like, there's a lot of links
0: to the prejudice of the time mm-hmm. and the fashion of the time that, again, I think is is a little more, not necessarily as opaque or, or not necessarily as, like, yeah, opaque. Like, you wouldn't be able to really see it unless you, like, went into this research and you're like, wait a second. like mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Oh, Yes. Overall, with these artistic settings, they wanted to blur the boundary between statue and living flesh Mm -hmm. to very much mimic the Greek and Roman statues that they were infatuated with. Mm -hmm. And very early on, especially, this is evidence from roughly 1800 to 1809, when a lot of the female fashion was very more simplistic, more white muslins and cottons. Uh, But overall, both men and women took inspiration from classical antiquity. For women, high-waisted silhouette and lightweight muslin became a very dominant style. And for men, which we'll talk about later on, it was very uh, tailored looks.
0: Yeah, this is kind of the period where the the men's suit really evolves into, like, the standard Mm -hmm. dress for men. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, back before this, if you think of like the court of one of the many Louis, uh, <laughs> all of the Louis were dressed very uh, gaudily. Mm-hmm. It's, and I say that neutrally, but they were dressed very gaudily and not how we think of men's wear today.
1: I love uh, I love my man wearing pumpkin. I love I love things. a man in a pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> I Throughout this entire podcast episode, we'll be talking about how the um, the fabric of the time for the women were, was very lightweight, uh, mostly white, especially early on. And as previously mentioned, it was definitely because the Greek and Roman statues were, when they were discovering them, quote unquote, they were white, and everyone thought, like, oh, they just didn't paint them, and this is what yeah. they look like. But they were, obviously we know now, they were painted, they were bleached and white by the sun, and from being exposed to the elements.
0: The main character, Daphne, wears a lot of, like, kind of pale blues and pale pinks, yes. Um which is, is pretty accurate for the time a lot of women were wearing more pastel tones.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And definitely, like, as it became closer to... 1810 like mid like 1805 to 1810 and onward more color started to be incorporated into the women's dress especially pastels pastels was a very very popular option Mm -hmm. this dress in particular especially was a way for women to engage in political ideas especially during a period where uh, a lot of women most women didn't have much of a voice at all there was often being suppressed and women wanted to assert their modern individuality through fashion since that was a lot of the only way that they could express themselves it's funny because the this sh- very very short-lived period of the neoclassical regency period very soon after women started to be like very free and almost very modern if you look at it uh, yeah, slowly started going back to how to, it was mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm, to <laughs> and, uh,
0: the, a century later, we have the S-Bend corsets, which are like the worst for your body.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and very tight skirts and dresses. And uh, We can go on a rabbit hole on why that happens, but it was men, not women, who experienced long-lasting change after this period since it developed into the mm-hmm. bottom suit and is still being worn today. And uh, women were basically barred from expanding into the political arena. (laughs) Yep.
0: I mean, I think it's, it's a lot of reasons why women and femme people really connect to this period a lot of times because there is so much... About women in this period, there's just specifically like there are a lot more women authors like Jane Austen and Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft. Like there's much more about just what the female experience was, not even necessarily how we would define like feminists today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we sort of have through several novels, we have a direct glimpse of what it was like to live as a woman during this time. Whereas, you know, in many eras before this, the only sort of resource that we have are paintings of women done by men or books about women written by men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't give you the whole picture. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think that is a huge thing. And also the fashion at the time, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it was very freeing.
1: It was very, very free. Moving on to, so as previously mentioned, 1800 to 1809, a lot of the dress for women was very simple. They did have accessories, and we'll get more into that in a moment, but it wasn't until 1810 and onward that women started to explore more and start adding back in more of that gaudiness as before. Yeah. Uh, they started to add more color and more pattern. A lot more trim, a lot more uh, hats, accessories, shawls, jackets. And Mm -hmm. I'll talk more about that in a second, the actual vocabulary. Underpinnings also during this period went through a revolution of their own. The desired female silhouette was no more very cinched in. It was a more natural body shape. For everyone. Yeah. And most corsets, or you know, uh, served to support and lift the breasts. Most women favored a short corset that stopped just below the underbust. Uh, chemises and petticoats were optional. However, the most fashionable of women got rid of them altogether. I mean, I was so just
0: interesting. gonna say, like, I think this is one of the things that Bridgerton actually got really right, is mm-hmm. they have, because you've seen a lot of the Regency era Jane Austen movies where they're lacing them up in like full corsets and you're like, that's not how that would have worked. Um, And usually I'm not a stickler about historical accuracy but I did appreciate that in Bridgerton that they actually had this sort of half corset, Mm -hmm. uh, half stays moment and they're really similar honestly in construction to like what we would call in modern era like a bustier.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one thing that always fascinated me with the underpinnings. A lot of people think either like what you just mentioned either women were wearing the full on stays or corsets as before or they just weren't wearing anything. Yeah. But they definitely were wearing underpinnings and they're it's interesting how modern they are. Like they just they look extremely modern. Yeah.
0: They're really now. Yeah, they're really recognizable as uh some like as an undergarment as something that you would use to support yourself so Mm -hmm. i think that's also just again something is that the undergarments and the structure of the time was not as restrictive as it as it has been obviously there's also debate in the costume community in particular about sort of people over dramatizing the restriction of stays but you know it was restrictive (laughs) you know and especially more during other time periods but for (laughs) this you know i could picture myself wearing this and feeling fine like yeah
1: definitely Yeah. It looks very cozy. It looks like a shirt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it looks just like regular undergarments. I don't know. Costume design secret for everyone. Uh, So we were having a discussion about corsets, and we were having a discussion about how Bridgerton mainly kept to the half stays. There is one family that does have the full stays, and that's the Featheringtons. And the reason they did that is to show that they're kind of out of touch with style. And what if the... like. Costume design tricks that I feel like you and I learned in school was if you want to show uh, anyone, particularly a woman as older in a show, you never put her in what people would actually wear, because most likely, for example, the queen in the show would not be wearing those like full pannier (laughs) garments. She would probably be wearing something. Akin to this, but because you want to show that she's older and she's from a different time, you just put her like inaccurately in clothing that, again, looks more like Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. And it just like easily visually conveys to the audience like, hey, this person is older. This person is from a different generation. And then you put the young people in like the very, very current fashion. That's, yeah.
1: that's definitely one of my favorite things about costuming that I get really passionate about. Yeah. Thinking like that is it's literally just real life because you have people dressed in the current fashions. That, I mean, now it's weird because fashion recycles itself and kids are wearing stuff. Yeah, like it's it's, years, it's but, hard to keep up now. <laughs> yeah, but before it was you would have the youths wearing what's fashionable at the time, but you would still have older generations wearing what they've had for years in their closets. So you would have people walking around in the streets wearing multiple different eras of clothing, decades of clothing. So like in the neoclassical Regency era, not everyone would be dressed like this. No, not everyone is up to date with the fashions. Some people still might uh, have some peignets lying around or a lot uh, with the court dress this kind of style dress didn't become popular in the courts until more later on in the neoclassical regency era. Yeah, Earlier on, um, this was more like day wear, but later on in the, in the courts or in the evenings, women might pull out their older, more gaudier dresses.
0: Yeah, and it's also another thing that shows, and this is maybe a little... That's a little dubious of the morality, but uh, another thing that can show that maybe a woman is a little bit, if a woman is kind of, you know, a little older, but she's still trying to feel younger, they'll always put her in like the most gaudy, obnoxious version of whatever the young people in the show are wearing, like without fail. And I think Mrs. Featherington in particular is always wearing like very bright clothes that are like. Trying to be a Regency dress, but like not quite. Like, there's she's missing a couple things. Um, and of course, I say it's of dubious morality because I'm like, that's a weird way to view people, but it is, it is true. A lot of the times, specifically designing a show like Bridgerton, where there's so many characters, you kind of have to like do really quick shorthands so the audience can easily just look at it and be like, I know this character, I know this character. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, on to a little vocabulary lesson. Bet y'all didn't know. (laughs) First, uh, for women, obviously the very, very popular, one of the reasons why a lot of people love the Regency era, the empire gowns. Uh, They're all universally high-waisted. The waistline ended just below the bust with emphasis on the bosom. And the resulting silhouette was tall and vertical. Yep headdresses during this time period were also very popular. Uh, They were generally either a variation of a bonnet-esque style or a head wrap, a Greco-Roman head wrap. Later on in the Regency era, feathers became a huge, huge thing you can see. If you do research and you look up images and clothing templates, women with these huge hats and very huge feathers. Love it. Very
0: bottom. I love, I love a fabulous hat.
1: Yes, absolutely. Hats make the outfit. And Spencers also were very, very popular. These are tailored short jacket that ended at the fashionable waist or underbust of this period.
0: I love a Spencer jacket as well. I, I
1: want one.
0: I There's want. This hat. is like probably my favorite garment of the period. <laughs>
1: They're fantastic. And they're definitely one of the most iconic ones. Mm -hmm. A police was... (laughs) Police. Um, A police was also very popular. Uh, This was a woman's long coat with long sleeves and a front opening. This was used throughout the 19th century. However, it was also very heavily worn, mainly in the Regency and Neoclassical period. If you can't picture this,
0: I feel like... The easiest way is like when you think of Bridgerton, there's always or any Regency drama, there's always a dress that someone wears where it kind of looks like they're wearing like an overdress and then an underdress and the overdress stops at the waist and sort of goes out. That's basically what a police is. It's just a fancy word for it.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Riding coats from England were also very popular.
0: Love a riding coat. (laughs)
1: Love, love a riding coat. Uh, Very popular accessories during this period were ridicules or indispensables, which were small pouch-like handbags that dangled from ladies' wrists. So they did have purses. Uh, Muffs were popular, they were still popular. Uh, Tall gloves that covered the forearms were very popular, even just gloves in general. Parasols, of course, have always been popular, especially during this period. Capes. And even large rectangular shawls. Uh, More specifically, the India shawl was the most popular because it could be worn both indoors and outdoors. And the shawls were made of silk, cashmere, and or muslin. The fancy muslin. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And again, just to tie it back to the the political situation of the time, just think about what Britain what was happening and you'll you'll understand where a lot of these silhouettes and names and inspiration comes from like for example a lot of these garments had an almost egyptian's land because at the time napoleon was discovering egypt and there was a huge craze called egyptomania very fun there are there are a lot of different uh fabrics and different types of fabrics used brocade was really popular muslin was actually something that originated in india some other fabrics that of course were sourced were silk wool brocades velvets typically natural fibers were preferred of course
1: also although it is very popular the the cotton muslins were very popular when you think when a lot of people think of neoclassical regency era that's what they think of but if you do uh Some clothing research, yes, you could see women wearing a lot of... I saw women wearing a lot of velvets. Mm -hmm. Something I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention earlier that I thought was fascinating, early as it was slowly... The neoclassical period was slowly evolving. Uh, Back in the early heydays in 1800 and very, very late 1700s, women were still holding on to some of the additional underpinnings that they wore previously. Bump pads were actually very popular in the very early days, but were very soon discarded. And I just said that was Yeah.
0: Funny. It's basically um like Regency Photoshop.
1: Yeah, basically Yeah, like basically that's how they did it back then. And I just I don't I think it's so cool. And then a hundred years later, roughly uh, that little butt bump comes back. Oh yeah, muscle period. I think it's cool. It
0: it turns into something else. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think a lot of people, especially a lot of f- fans of fashion, people who listen to this podcast, will realize that fashion is very cyclical, and what's popular now will come back twenty years later and is influenced by ten or twenty or thirty other different things that happened before this. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. All right, you wanna talk about menswear?
1: Not yet. Okay. I have more to add. I'm excited. (laughs) Other very, very popular clothing tidbits that you can see when you're researching registry clothing, simple prints, especially florals and repeated stripe patterns were extremely popular during this period. Um, These were often hand painted or block printed or roller printed. Overall, simple repeating patterns were favored. Van Dyke points or soft tooth trim was extremely prevalent. And I did not notice it before, but now I notice it everywhere when I look <laughs> at Regency <Sea> clothing <laughs> and white work, which is just white on white embroidery. I love was white work. Actually, everywhere in mm-hmm. <laughs> women's wear in the Regency period. We see white work
0: a lot of the times, I think. In like embroidered or eyelet fabrics, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty. I that's those were also I feel like very popular during the period. I mean, they're oh, yeah. directly inspired, and I see. I think especially since Bridgerton was so influential, I think we're seeing a lot of the types of you know subtle white embroidery, white work embroidery on a lot of runways and a lot of uh, ready-to-wear brands.
1: Absolutely, it's definitely definitely. Making it never left, but it's definitely making more of a resurgence. For sure. And mameluke sleeves, which are these funny long full sleeve, uh that are partitioned into five sections, each section being drawn and seemed to finish around the arm. These are extreme they everywhere in the Regency period. And uh since statement sleeves are extremely huge on the runways, currently uh these kind of sleeves are coming back.
0: Love it. I love a statement sleeve. <laughs> I love any weird sleeve that people come up with. I'm so here for it.
1: <laughs> Statement sleeves are the coolest.
0: Also, puff sleeves were really big. It was either yes. like a mammalic sleeve, a straight regular sleeve that you would think of, or like a big puff sleeve, which again, I feel like those are very similar to what's on the runway right now. So oh, Absolutely.
1: Now on to menswear. So... For a lot of people, menswear is not quite as fun to talk about as womenswear, but it is something that also changed during this period and we definitely can't leave it out.
0: Also, the, the the Regency, I mean, come on, like Regency menswear, I feel like is iconic because every single adaptation of Mr. Darcy is he's just he looks the best. It's like he true. looks so cool. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his big, dramatic, long coat, like walking through the fog or it's Colin Firth, like just looking beautiful. I so we Colin have Firth. to talk about this. Is.
1: Menswear is very greatly attributed to being propelled by the one and only George Beau Brummel. He's like was, the
0: OG influencer. Yeah,
1: he, <laughs> yeah. Is, he is. He is literally the OG influencer. Very, very close friend of the English Prince Regent. Beau Brummel was known for his impeccable dress aesthetics, including very beautifully tailored English coats, his clothing was always immaculate. His linen shirts and cravats were always precisely pressed and starched, and he always looked very clean and put together.
0: He he had, like, a color code that he would wear. He would, like, specifically <laughs> wear, like, navy blue on top and then, like, a khaki-colored pant, and he, like, would only wear that. It was very interesting. <laughs>
1: But this uh, set the precedent for a lot of men and what they should be achieving in their menswear. The men still wore coats, waistcoats, shirts, pants, cravats, as they did before. Fine woolen cloth was a very popular fabric choice, uh, for this could be stretched and molded to fit the body very closely. Uh, Crepe or silk jersey pantaloons clung to the legs. And there were two versions of the tail coat that were worn. The riding coat was a less formal choice. This coat sloped gently from the waist uh, back to the tails, and the dress coat was cut in at the waist, either straight across or in an inverted U shape. Waistcoats were cut straight across, single or double breasted, and they featured tall stand collars. In regards to pants, both breeches, uh, breeches end at the knee, and these were proper evening attire paired with white stockings, as well as pantaloons, which ended closer to the ankles. However, over time, pantaloons became a much more popular option, and they're still worn today as pants. As pants. We do not call them pantaloons anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> That'd be fun. Look, I'm going to just start calling them Yeah, pants. it's much more fun. <laughs> boots also were extremely popular, specifically Hessian boots, defined by their heart-shaped tops and tassels, named after mercenary soldiers from Germany. If everyone thinks of Washington crossing the
0: Delaware... Exactly. famously that's an example of hessian soldiers it's
1: true yep. exactly there you go and frock coats everyone loves a good frat everyone coat. everyone loves a frock coat yeah these are very popular uh specifically emerging in the in 1815 these coats are defined by its knee-length skirts which hung straight from the fitted waist and eventually into horizontal waistline seams.
0: Yeah, a lot of these garments, even though you know someone might look at them now and be like, "This looks really weird," <laughs> they're really sort of the forefathers of what we would consider like a typical men's tailored suit. Like, of course, the fine woolen cloth that was stretched and molded to fit to the body is basically what top top tier tailors do now, as mm-hmm. uh, they really do mold and sculpt wool to a man's body. Um, And a lot of these coats, again, while they might look a little interesting now, we can see a more modern silhouette with them with your typical like pea coat, trench coat, all that kind of stuff is sort of derived from this period.
1: Oh, absolutely. Especially Mm -hmm. when you see paintings and images of men wearing the pantaloons.
0: Yeah, exactly. I also feel like a frock coat. I just have to say, I feel like every costume designer for a Regency show, when they're like, "Mm, we need to indicate the male lead. (laughs) Here's your frock coat. (laughs) uh, All right. You want to talk about some pop culture stuff and then we'll wrap it up? Cool. So we're just going to talk about a few of the big pop culture Regency TV shows, books, movies, because obviously that's part of the reason why the Regency is so popular is because there's so many good books and TV shows and movies set during that time. Oh, yeah. Obviously, we've been talking about Bridgerton throughout this because a lot of our audience will hopefully be listening to this before they watch Bridgerton and kind of getting some historical background. One of the people who kind of invented Bridgerton or a lot of the tropes that are in Bridgerton, which I didn't know about. And while I was doing research, I found this amazing box article about it. um, Was Georgette Heyer, who was as prolific as Agatha Christie. She made many romance novels, and many people, including Kate Quinn of Bridgerton, uh, credit her as the inventor of a lot of Regency romance novel tropes. Think like arguing in a ballroom during a dance, or like they kiss in a field, but then they have to like be sequestered away, like those kind of like stuff that you expect to see over and over again in these uh, shows, she kind of was the inventor for that. Um, And a lot of people might be like, but wait, Jane Austen. The thing that I learned was that Jane Austen's books were more regarded as being very universal because a lot of the things that Jane Austen talks about are pretty relatable. Even now, you know, she's talking a lot about the social mores of the time and what it was like to be specifically a woman during that time. A lot of the times, Hires' articles were way more specific. Specific, She really got into the research of every time period, um, so much so that she wrote a book about Waterloo and a historical like a university asked her to speak about Waterloo because she did so much research and became like the expert about it, which wow. is amazing. Uh, and so she really delved deep into the time period and was able to take the time period and sort of. Make these, you know, anachronisms that became very popular in writing today. Her book, Venetia, just got a special folio edition with an introduction by Stephen Fry. And there are a lot of people calling for her books to be adapted into films so she can be discovered by a wider audience. This is somebody I did not know until doing my research, and I definitely want to read her books now. And I'm just very excited that more people are discovering all these cool authors. We've listed a couple of different movies here. Obviously Pride and Prejudice is probably the most adapted one. Mm-hmm. My personal favorite is the 2005 one. I mean, Two thousand five <sighs> so one. So good. That's the serious resurgence on TikTok. <laughs> I feel like because it's on, uh, I think it's on Netflix, right? Yeah. And so everyone's watching it and they're like, oh, this movie is so good. <laughs> yes, it is. is. It's just so good. It's a pretty faithful adaptation. The costumes in it are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I love that scene where she like trapes through the mud and then she goes into the fancy uh, house where Mr. Darcy is. And everyone is like, what? <laughs> like, that's great. Um, 2020 Emma was released, which I thought was really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's The costuming in that is a lot more similar to Bridgerton in that it's very vibrant, and very colorful. Yes.
1: Which a lot of people... Will argue, I mean, a lot of people scream about how the costumes in those movies aren't extremely accurate with the fabrics. But it's not completely inaccurate. Because no. they did wear color and they did wear a lot of patterns.
0: So. Yeah. And also this is going to be sassy, but you're not watching a documentary. Like I don't really expect any TV show to be like completely historically accurate. Obviously if it's like glaring and it's something that's like deeply offensive, like that's different. But in terms of costumes, like I think and especially, uh, And Emma, as well, is more about sort of the feel of the time and what Mm -hmm. it was like to be sort of a young person in this very strict hierarchical society. Whereas a lot of the times I think people sort of get wrapped up into, I mean, you can go as we have, you can go into a rabbit hole with these clothes and Mm -hmm. just get lost. So Uh,
1: another movie uh, that we both have watched. Mm -hmm is Bright Star from yes. 2009. Also, a very good movie. Very good. Um, it's it's very, this is the one
0: I think also can credit Georgette Heyer for a lot of the yeah. sort of romance tropes that are in this movie because it's just ridiculous yeah. at yeah. times. You're just like,
1: hmm, okay. There's this one specific scene that I won't mention just because Yeah. Oh, God. yeah. It's, 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 it's one of, it's,
0: we don't even mean it as like a mean thing. It's just like, it's funny because also it's about uh, Keats and Keats was that dramatic so mm-hmm. I don't even I'm like, mm, he probably was like that. <laughs>
1: 100%. 100%. Another uh, another movie that I recommend that I remember watching a few years ago in school is Bo Brummel. This charming man, which mostly highlights uh, highlights, God, mostly highlights men's fashion more than mm-hmm. women's fashion, as opposed to these other movies that we mentioned. But it was also a very interesting movie. The co- the costumes are fairly accurate watching it. It was one of the first times that I watched a movie and I actually fell in love with menswear. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's if you've never heard of Bo Brummel and you're like... Curious about that? I think it's a great place to start. I mean, obviously, again, it's a movie, so it's not going to be one hundred percent accurate to his real life. But yeah. you can sort of visually see what he looked like and what the men's clothes were like. And again, he's the OG influencer. So woo! Yes. <laughs> all right, so that's about it for us in terms of Bridgerton. We're just going to briefly discuss everything new at Mood, and then leave you all to watch the new series. Woo! Woo! So, there's a lot this past two months. Yeah. Uh, we've been very, very busy. Exciting, Exc- a lot of really exciting things, but just very busy. So first, obviously Bridgerton. There's a lot of weddings in Bridgerton, mm-hmm. and if you are also planning on a spring summer wedding, it's the season. It is the season, and you need stuff for the bride, the groom. Bridesmaids, mother of the bride, anyone in your wedding party, or if you're a wedding guest, we have a whole new bridal landing page that makes shopping for your bridal gown so much easier. And you can, you know, you can sort by sheer and opaque and what type of fabric you like and what you don't like. And it can sort of really streamline the process of making your own wedding gown because wedding planning is already stressful enough. Okay. <laughs> and again, it, we also have sections for the groom and bridesmaids and mother of the bride. So if you want to sew everything for your whole party, which God bless you,
1: um, <laughs>
0: yeah. you yeah, you have superpowers if that is the case, um, but you can definitely look, or if you just want to sew, you know, the groom's outfit, brides, it's really easy to navigate.
1: We have a spring cleaning sale, which is ongoing, and the sale is as supplies last. They they go extremely, extremely Yeah. Hard. So highly recommend checking it out now before it's too late because and that fabric might be gone the next time you click onto the page. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it's all sorts of fabric. Um, literally, star, it's literally, it's dead stock seven. fabric, prints, sequins. I mean, it's like a little bit of everything. So you'll probably find something you like in there.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. And now that we're going towards a warmer climate, uh, we're announcing our Mood Earth initiative uh, to help usher in a more... Just have a more eco-friendly awareness in the fashion industry, which is something that we should all be pushing more.
0: Yeah, um, obviously the fashion and textile industry is one of the biggest producers of waste. I'm sure many people listening to this have heard of the terms fast fashion. And it's just something that definitely a mood. Not only have we sort of had it part of our policy for since our founding, actually, because we've always sourced deadstock fabric from designers. That's really what we built our name on. But of course, we also just want to highlight and continue to grow not only with our fabrics and continue to improve what we can do sustainably, but encourage others to do the same. So you can go to the landing page and there are a few different categorizations of what we stock that are sustainable fabrics. And you can look for yourself and see specifically what they are. I'm not Going to bore you with a science lecture. Um I had to do a bunch of scientific research to write it and I am so happy I took an AP environmental <laughs> science class in high school because it's a lot of technical stuff, but we really simplify it for you and just say like this is exactly what it is. Because also a lot of the certifications for it are really, really opaque.
1: Oh yeah definitely. And um, yeah. on our Instagram account and our Facebook account we'll be we'll be we'll continue to promote mood earth and tell you all about it in the most simplistic terms that we can. So it's very understandable and you can uh, see what we're trying to push and achieve. And uh,
0: yeah. yeah, You don't have to do any research, which is just nice. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I personally would like to promote is adaptive patterns. I've sort of been very passionate and, spearheading a little one-person <laughs> movement to just make our patterns more adaptive to those with disabilities or other accessibility needs. We are releasing the Linda Pants. By the time this goes up, I also have a few more patterns in the works and a roundup of some of our patterns that either are already like adaptive and you can wear or can be really easily uh, changed into an adaptive pattern.
1: And on the note of more patterns, some patterns, if you want to uh, recreate the Regency Neoclassical oh era. yeah
0: this is our first podcast that's going up with patterns yeah Yeah. Ooh. we have a mini like collection for you it's yes. really exciting
1: stay tuned for fun collection photos what's but- in regards to the patterns, uh, of course, we have our Bridgerton dress. Of course. Which you can create your uh, Regency dress dreams. Yeah. You can. We The dress
0: itself is like a, a mini dress, but you can definitely lengthen it and mm-hmm. wear a Regency dr- gown
1: whenever you want. Oh, yeah. And the, the sleeves are also short. Again, you can lengthen it. And yep. You can customize it to your needs.
0: I feel like this is the pattern when I've seen people make it. Like, I've seen a lot of people who totally customize it and make it their own, which is really, really cool. So,
1: And we also have two coat slash jacket patterns. One of them
0: is the Hydra's coat. If you want to look like Mr. Darcy <laughs> tramping through the moors to go find <laughs> his beautiful love after she's been, you know, Keira Knightley, after Judy Dench yelled at her, wear the Hydra's coat. It's <laughs> just embody Mr. Darcy. It's the vibe. It's so cool. It's also all gender. So if you're a mix Darcy, a Ms. Darcy, or a Mr. Darcy, you can wear it.
1: We also have the elm jacket, which honestly, when I first saw it, I don't know. It reminds me of the circus. (laughs) I love it. In like a cool (laughs) way. It looks like it's.
0: So it's a double-breasted coat. It's very inspired by what uh, men would have been wearing at this time period, and I don't remember the name. Fun history thing. If we continue to do more history podcasts, I am notoriously bad at remembering the (laughs) names of things. (laughs) I did the research of it. I don't even remember what it's called. So it's between a dress coat and a tail coat. Um, again, I, I'm i bad at remembering names of things, so I apologize. But uh, it's really cool. Uh, in the feature that we're doing, we made it out of one of our popular brocades, which it just looks really, really cool. Oh, so yeah.
1: it's, it's honestly quite a, a beautiful design. Mm-hmm. And at the time this podcast comes out, we'll have another very brand new pattern, which is the Wren blouse. Which is a button down, and it comes in two pattern variations. Uh, it's very, very modernized, but one of them has very much Regency vibes with a, a more fuller, puffier. It has the Mameluk sleeve. Exactly. Yes. The sleeve comes back. And the other pattern variation is just a, a very normal, plain button down. Yep,
0: yeah, but hey, everyone needs like a good. Button down shirt. I actually think that was our first ever sewing project we did. Was a button down shirt. Aww. Still have it in my closet. I don't know where mine is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. And again, it's you can do the fun look style statement sleeve, or you can just keep it to a really simple, plain button down, and you know, wear it to it to work. Everyone's going back to the office, so (laughs) (laughs) got (laughs) it. Got to grab some (laughs) workwear. Or make your own. Or make your own. All right. I think that's about. it- everyone, have a wonderful month. We'll see you next month for other stuff.
1: Yes, thank you for exploring the Regency era with us and going back in time a little bit. Yes and let us
0: know your what's what's your thoughts on Bridgerton, what your favorite Regency silhouette is if you think we're totally wrong about it being ugly <laughs> um, let us know just tell us we would love to hear from you. <laughs> All right. And that's about it. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, thank you everyone. Adios. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Mood Society podcast. We are produced by Mood Designer Fabrics and the Mood Society blog. Be sure to follow us on social media for sewing and podcast updates. We are at Mood Fabrics on Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok. Join our Facebook group, linked in the description, if you'd like to directly interact with us, ask us questions, and post updates on what you've been making. And if you're loving the podcast, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Whether you're sewing, crafting, designing, or just hanging out, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.